0: Life can be absurd, so say the existentialists. This absurdity comes with a near unfettered freedom we have to determine who we want to be in the world. For atheistic existentialists like Jean-Paul Sartre, we are not born with a predetermined purpose but have a tremendous responsibility to ourselves and the world to construct purpose and meaning. In the first episode of our new series, we are calling "Theory in Practice." Reggie Jackson of Satori Counseling and I explore some of the philosophical commitments existentialists hold through the work of John, through Jean-Paul Sartre's work. Existentialism is a humanism. "Theory in Practice" is a product of Lawrence Talks Inc., a nonprofit organization that seeks to introduce philosophical work to a general public and explore local issues with the philosophical and humanities approach. You can find this episode in the Lawrence Talks podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and online at lawrencetalks.org. We hope you enjoy and thank you for listening. To this episode of Lauren's Talks, we begin or embark on a new sort of adventure, a new series. Joining me on this on this endeavor. And back on the show is is Reggie Jackson of Satori Counseling. Reggie, thank you for joining me for this.
1: Thanks. Thanks for having me. Looking <laughs> forward to it. We um it seemed like we just vibed very well when we met for the first talk. So I'm excited to see what we can come up with. It'll be fun to Try something. See what we can create.
0: The basic purpose of this of this series is to discuss theories uh, that we find of interest, philosophical theories of some nature, and then applying it to the work of, of uh, therapy, of counseling, and and generally to the work that that Reggie is doing or does in in his in his work at Satori Counseling. Uh, Reggie, did you want to say say more about? about this series Ed, of what you hope to accomplish in it and, and what sort of interested you in, in taking on this.
1: Yeah, for sure. Like you were saying, just having, um, having an intersection of uh, philosophy and working with people and it just being, us just being better human beings and learning and growing as people. I thought this would be a, cu- a cool space to have some discussions with you, you and I, talk outside of this and thought it would be a cool concept to put in, put in place. And yeah, just even out expanding from not just your space of philosophy and this space of, of well being and work that I do is just, hopefully this just, you know, has a ripple effect on society as a whole, you know? And so I'm looking forward to it. I think we have a lot of, interest in learning things, and, and we can um, produce that and, and put it out to the, to the world.
0: And for our first show, we'll actually be exploring the, the philosophy of the French existentialists. Well, ex- existentialism in general, focusing primarily on John Paul Sartre's uh, essay, Existentialism as a Humanism. But before we get started uh, there, Reggie, had in mind maybe starting off with a sort of mindfulness exercise that you could kind of take us through. Okay, cool, cool.
1: Yeah, I think today, well, first I would like to let our listeners know, like breathing is a foundation of any mindfulness meditation practice. And so I would say, as we start this, just make sure um, that you're taking breaths in to the point where you feel your lungs pushing your belly out, you're feeling your diaphragm, expand, and just pay attention to the rhythm of your breathing. So so making sure you're being intentional about that. So I'm gonna give y'all a couple of seconds to lock into the rhythm of full deep breaths. So slowly breathing in through your nose and slowly breathing out. Okay, the next thing we're gonna do just a body scan. So what I'd like you to really be focusing on and this should pull you into the present. Part of this mindfulness or meditation exercise is about allowing yourself to be present in um your space not focusing on what happened yesterday or this morning when you first got up and not about the plans for the rest of your day so being centered and balanced on right now simply try as weird as this may sound try to feel the crown of your head and slowly scan down your body and what you're kind of trying to sense is any tensions you're holding in your body. Most of the time I'm holding tensions, tension in my traps and upper shoulders and neck area. So you want to just make sure that you're allowing those those tensions to, to relax and ease up wherever you're sitting or standing for that matter, just total relaxation of the body. And if you're sitting down, I always tell my daughter, like just feel like a blob in the chair. And so you will do this all the way down to the soles of your feet. Again, just paying attention. If you are focused on other things, it's going to be hard to feel any tensions in your body. And so it's really, again, like I said, pulling you into right now and checking your body. And you might notice I mean, maybe some slight tingling sensations and things like that. Or if your belly's rumbling, if you're hungry, you should be sensing all that stuff. That's something that we can do to start our morning off or any time during the day. And the beautiful part about it, David, is that nobody knows you're doing that. You know, <laughs> so maybe you're if, if, if your belly is rising, if you got a big belly like me, you might realize that your belly rising. But other than that, you can do that anywhere. I do it in the car sometimes when I'm riding over to work or. Just when I know that uh, I catch myself trying to problem solve too many things or getting caught up in things and making sh- and feeling like when you can feel yourself feeling overwhelmed or anxious about things, it's a good change of pace that takes literally a minute or two. And so uh, that's called a body scan. I say, a good step in any mindfulness practice. So, uh, thanks for letting me share that. One.
0: Yeah, well, thank thank you, Reggie, for taking us through that. And I think you sort of ended off on on this discussion about anxiety and a sort of all the choices and the the actions or the choices that we face in an everyday life can often be very overwhelming. And that that's a perfect sort of way of getting into our discussion about existentialism because one of the things that existentialism highlights at least about human existence is this bombardment of choices is this bombardment of all the, the amount of tough decisions that we have to make on a daily basis and so it's it's a sort of perfect start off point for where for for this series so I'll, we'll begin sort of from the uh, giving some context i think so I'll, as i mentioned in the beginning we'll be focusing primarily on the essay by Jean-Paul Sartre, who is a French philosopher of the early 20th century. And so focusing on his essay, the or existentialism is a humanism. And this is written in the year of 1946. So think about uh, the sort of things that are going on in that time. This is about a year after the end of World War II. And so after a culmination of a great deal of Strife in in the world globally, two world wars, the the revolution in Russia, the rise of communism. And so this is where this work sits. This is the sort of world and the history that this that this work comes out of.
1: I was curious about in my mind this had been written. Like nineteen forty six is pretty dang pretty damn modern. (laughs) Like I was thinking this was maybe even like 19th century stuff so that's pretty amazing to um, to hear that and and for you to identify it's coming out of Europe during the Second World War
0: yeah no it's so existentialism I mean it it, it can sort of it is older than this this work is it can trace mm-hmm. that back to back to I think before we started recording we, we were discussing the work of, of Soren Kierkegaard a a Dane theologian philosopher and he's from the 1800s mm-hmm. and many people see him as a sort of founder uh, of existentialist thought and so while while john Sartre is in the 20th century writing in the 20th century existentialism itself can be traced back much much uh, longer than that and right. and if one arguably can say that even even the greeks to some degree have strains of existentialist thought here but what we get in in this work in this essay by john paul sartre is a sort of condensed and a nice summation of what existentialist thought is about and what it what it means to be an existentialist he begins uh this essay generally i guess i what i want to sort of also emphasize before we get to the content what Sartre is doing here is what's typical of, of any philosoph- philosophical writing is beginning with a concept.
1: Okay.
0: And then sort of going on this exercise of what does that concept mean? What is it, what is it um, what does it mean to be an existentialist? What does is, what is existentialist thought entail? So that's his that's his project here and, and and additionally his project here is also to to do so to explain existentialist thought with a few critiques in mind the main critique or the overall crit- critique that he's concerned with with addressing here is this idea that existentialism is sort of a invokes or entails this very negative picture of human existence mm-hmm. and of human nature in general so it, it, it fails to be a humanist philosophy that mm-hmm. fails to sort of embrace what it means to be human, it fails to sort of promote the ends of human beings. And what what Sartre wants to say in this essay is that is not the case. And, and so there are three three primary critiques that he has in mind and re- addressing in this work. One of them is a an emerging criticism by the communists. So, communists communism is uh, as many might know by now is a strain or one of the main strains of, of Marxist thought, Marxist critique. And one of the main critiques that uh, come out of Marxist criticism is that philosophy in general has often been geared towards or is intended for this bourgeois class, this class that has the luxury, or to say it in another way, is has the opportunity to live in the, in the life of luxury. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's only in that life of luxury that we can truly philosophize, can contemplate, because we have time to do so. Everyone else, you know, the, who... Proletariat. Proletariat, the contrast, <laughs> bourgeois, they're the working class. They don't have this so, the same sort of freedom as the bourgeois. For uh, sure. And And so, yeah, that's... So philosophy is just primarily for the bourgeois class. It's mm-hmm. not because thinking about what you and I are doing now, we are not confined to, you know, keep working to, to not have these discussions. Right. But we do have time. We do have time to have the discussions because we live in this sort of predicament that we have, we have this time is a luxury. You can think of that.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. And everything comes so fast now that you can, uh, you can be more, um, well one with the access the information that we have so quickly that sometimes you can create space to create your own learning and and it's all right there like you get on your phone or something and the information is there if you're willing to put in the work of learning interesting stuff
0: yeah and so yeah then that's basically the 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 main criticism that's that or one of the yeah you know, the first sort of criticism that uh, Sart wants to address here is he wants to say that it's not just about this quietism this this sort of reflective uh philosophy just another reflective philosophy that we can enjoy in in in, in luxury mm-hmm. um so he's going to want to say that or what he wants to show is that existentialism existentialism is about action it promotes Acting or this life of action rather than this life of quietism, this life of contemplation because mm-hmm. that is that is another sort of strain in the in the traditional philosophy is is that the best sort of life the life that we all want should pursue is one of quietism, one of contemplation that is no, that is when we know we've we've uh made it in life when we have that time to contemplate
1: and he's saying it is he Kind of saying that you have to be part of the uh, bourgeoisie to have that time, or is he making you know like concessions that we may have to take action to have time to think?
0: No, yeah, he's so he wants to fully uh, situate this out existentialism outside of the bourgeois life.
1: Okay, okay, I was just making sure we're tracking the same. I was tracking with you on that. All right, yeah. No, yeah, good. So anyone, it's more, anyone can be doing it. You don't have to be a part of the bourgeoisie to have this life. Right. To have these type of, these profound thoughts and things like that.
0: Correct. He wants to say that existentialism isn't just for the bourgeois class. And two, existentialism isn't just about contemplation. It's about thinking about how we should live our lives. What sort of things we should really commit ourselves to? What sort of causes we should commit ourselves to? Because Sartre himself, I I believe, was a was sympathetic to the communist cause, and so so that's one other motivation that he uh, that he has to distinct to, to really address this concern about existentialism is because he himself considers himself a at least sympathetic. He says this in, in the in the essay that he. He is sympathetic to communism, but he's not sure yet of what will come of it, and so yeah. he want to commit fully to to the cause, uh, at least because this gets we'll get to this, but it gets to the idea of the term is a priori, mm-hmm. and all that means is prior to uh, experience. Yeah. So when we he wants to, well, we'll get to it. We'll get to okay. that. We'll get okay. And then the the second. Criticism that he really wants to address is that existentialism fails to acknowledge the good of human existence. That human existence is best characterized, as this, critic- as this criticism goes, uh, for the existentialist, as a life of despair. So they they're being accused here of highlighting or overemphasizing the what is harsh about life. What is what is uh, sort of troubling about human existence, rather than celebrating its good its good parts? Yeah.
1: I really like that he's promoting the idea that anyone can dig into existentialism and making it for the masses, and it's not a you know if we are living in our current world and hearing about the one percent uh, disparity and the rich versus the poor, like hearing things. About, I guess what I would say, high-level thinking can be for the masses, not just for the ones. or the bourgeoisie. it's for everyone, and I really like that. And I dig that um, I'm a person of action, so I I like that he is um, promoting doing something about it, not just sitting back and, and chilling and checking things out, but getting after it and creating a space. So I dig that a lot.
0: And I I think he wants to definitely say that, I mean, he's going to, so as we, as we move here, he's going to emphasize the freedom that we have and the, and with that freedom, as the saying goes, comes great responsibility. And so he wants to say that existentialism wants to take that responsibility seriously or thinks that we should take that responsibility seriously. And one way of, of doing that, one way of doing that is, is, is the, is the way they start off of what they take as foundational uh, to to their to their philosophy, um, and and I'll get to that in here in a bit. So the last criticism, is, and it, and it flows from this this. Uh, so what I hope is shown here is that everything flows from the prior from these prior commitments. So this final critique is is one that s- says that existentialism promotes a morality that is relative, meaning that especially in, uh, with atheistic existentialism this idea that well you if you remove god then everything flows everything follows uh, everything is permitted yeah uh, and so this there's this uh, further concern that values which traditional philosophy wants to say it can be determined prior to experience a priori that there are these values that we should have that everyone should have
1: without having to be told by some a guy like someone doesn't have to tell us that they should that should be within us already is that fair for me to say
0: yeah that, so that yeah yes so one way of, of, of understanding that is to say that we should be able to reason about what the right thing to do is without first experiencing it or someone someone telling us what 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 should be done or what we should right. you shouldn't kill
1: people we don't need a commandment for that. Right <laughs>
0: just, just, like so uh, this comes from Immanuel Kant who is also from the from the 19th or yeah 18th 18th century and his idea there was, was to say that there are these universal laws and these universal principles about right action and we should be able to come to these principles determining what is the right thing to do without having... To experience it first, yeah, we should just be able to think from the meaning of the words themselves. Uh, so you you think about what it means to kill, what it means to lie, and and what that what that entails. Not necessarily in terms of the consequences, but what sort of issues would arise. So, just as an example, one of the reasons why Kant believed that lying was always wrong was that well, think about think if everyone lied. Think of everyone uh, lied all the all the time that it was just normal for people to lie, and so there. It's not necessarily a consideration of the consequences, but it it wouldn't make much sense to even talk about lying because it was something that is something so normal and basic about life. Uh, so as a concept, lying wouldn't have much weight or wouldn't make much sense in, in the world. We wouldn't be able to talk about it.
1: It's also, David, from a, what I'm hearing you say about Com- is um, he's talked in my mind when I hear it. He's talking about the idea of empathy, like we if we tr- treated people the way we want to be treated, we don't have to have prior experiences to know that punching someone in the face or hurting someone is going to impact them and maybe the people that care about them. And so, from uh, I don't know therapeutic space, and as I hear that, that's what I think that is. He's he. We should have empathy for other people, and that will lead us to a place of healthier decision making.
0: Yeah, no. So, Immanuel Kant's work. There are a number of formulations of of the universal law. Uh, mm-hmm. One of them is the the formula of humanity. And it basically says this, and I believe uh, Sart talks a little bit about this as well: to not treat people merely as means, but to always treat them as ends.
1: Yeah, I have some questions for you about that because that's an interesting idea to me.
0: Yeah, no, no, that, that's that's the other thing I thought was nice about this essay is that it can it's a nice sort of introduction to all these other sort of prior. Conversations and philosophy that have been had, and I think Sartre does not to, not to necessarily praise what he's saying, but or that he what his his idea of these conversations. But he does a nice way of of in, at least introducing them into the conversation in his in his conversation that such that people are coming to this essay it was like, oh, I wonder, I want to know more about this aspect. I want to know more about yeah. that aspect. Um, so I thought that was pretty interesting. That you get all of this prior conversation and philosophy. Uh, in this one essay. And so th- the other, that last aspect of that criticism was that if values are subjective, then it seems like whatever anyone does is the right thing or is a good thing. And if that, if that is true, or if, if moral relativism is true, then we can't criticize others. There's no, there's no possibility of, of criticism because how am I going to criticize others if, if we all believe as existentialists that what any individual does is good for them, is good in their case uh, mm-hmm. to, to their values, their set of values that they have or what they think is important. How can I criticize, how, how am I able to criticize them if I believe also that moral truth or moral rightness is relative to the subject? So that's
1: more about the subjectivity when he's talking about, Subjectivity as more of what he's looking at is, is subjective to the, what the person is trying to accomplish or whatever their mindset is for what their accomplishments or goals are, are about. Right. So other people wouldn't know. So why judge them if you don't know what their responsibilities are or things like that? And so why judge them on their actions when you don't know what they're going through?
0: I think that's, uh, that's part of it. And, and, but I think he wants to make the, the even more sort of grander claim that, or it's more, I guess, a philosophical claim about it just wouldn't make, or he, so Sartre's not making this claim The the criticism is of, of existentialism is making this claim is that it's like, look, if we can't, if values or what is determining what is valuable is sort of made atomic to the subject making these claims, then I can't criticize you because criticism entails that there's this objective matter of fact about,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: I like that. Um, And so that, that's the criticism. And, and I think Sartre is going to basically say, yeah, that's, it's it's true in some sense and it's not true in another sense is, is what he's going to say.
1: When I've uh, taught, or even when I do supervision with other therapists who are, you know, training for the next level of licensing. I don't like it. I almost said hate it, but I really dislike when someone asks, like right? they'll give me a rundown of a case and then they'll say, What would you do in that case? And I'm like, That's not really fair because I'm I'm coming from a whole different lens than you are, and we do have to consider our upbringing and how we see the world. So it's kind of like unfair to that person for me to explain what I would do. And I don't know what my mood or where I was at, you know, as far as headspace to put myself in that, that at that time and work with that person. So it's, you can give tips, but it's kind of unfair to say, to answer that question. Um, Because it's like, I don't know all the dynamics. How, like, what's the relationship level with you and the client? You know, or what is the nuances that have been going on in the therapeutic relationship leading up to that time? Um, so as I, when I try to answer those questions, it's only coming from what I think may be going on in that therapeutic relationship Mm -hmm. and, and probably some bias from, that that person I'm talking to and my interactions with them and looking at maybe what they could be, you know, maybe working on or maybe we've discussed challenges they have in the therapeutic setting. So all that is going through my, you know, being filtered into what would I do if a client did that with me, you know? And so it's, it's hard to answer those questions without having all those ideas come into play. So it's kind of a it's tough when I hear people say that because it's like it's unfair for me to say what I would do because I don't know all these other experiences that are in play, if that all makes sense.
0: No, it does. And and that's exactly sort of Sartre's problem with. So the issue that, that Sartre brings up to, today, we, we refer to. What you just talked about these cases as thought experiments, and and today philosophy is is full of of thought experiments. Is and there's actually a a branch of, of philosophy called experimental philosophy, which sort of goes, I think, sort of goes around testing people's intuitions about certain cases, and then tries to from those shared intuitions. There's much more to it, but one of the one of the basic aims of the project of X, what's called XY is to sort of determine what's essential to all these intuitions that we have, or what's the, what's the central principle that connects our intuitions, our shared intuitions about certain cases. But uh, this is what Sartre would have a problem with is, uh, so he has a problem with a priori contemplation about what we should do in certain cases. Mm. Going to know until uh, you get to that to that case when you actually experience that case, and and this is sort of when he he talks about the son who has to make a decision between staying with his mother or, or going to war. And so he, one of the some of the facts that he has to consider is that you know his with his mother she lost a son already, and to the war. and I, I believe we are led to believe that the husband also left the family, and so the son who's making, who's considering this, this decision has to make a decision with, because like if, if he leaves, then that would leave his mother further in despair because he's all who she has left.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And so he, and that's, that's a sort of decision. So he said the student came to him uh, for advice and the only advice he could give him, it was sort of, you know, best, Uh, whatever you, whatever you come to, all you can do is hope you made the right decision. Hopefully
1: Mm
0: -hmm. you considered all the relevant facts and, but there's no principle. There's, there's no sort of sort of the principles that Kant was concerned with establishing Mm -hmm. that tells you what you should be doing or what tells you what you ought to do definitively. Right. This gets to his issue with thinking of these issues, thinking of morality Mm -hmm. This a priori sense, this prior to existence idea, because that's not how we One, I think he was trying to make a a sort of observation about human nature. It's like we don't make decisions that way. Right. We don't make decisions prior to an experience prior to that decision point. Mm -hmm. We make it within that decision point. Yeah.
1: And all that the decision has to be made within the context of that time and space in your life. There really isn't a right or wrong, but people are going to judge you on your decision regardless. (laughs) You know, like if you haven't had a prior experience, then you're making the best decision that you think in that moment.
0: Yeah, and and this is particu- particularly a facet of atheist existentialism, mm. right? Because uh, because we've removed God from consider- consideration, and so we've removed this sort of point, this uh this sort of idea that we should refer to what God might want us to do. That and-
1: makes more sense. I was struggling with what he was trying to say a little bit with with the guy, but now once you. Um, say that that
0: makes more sense right and and so but for for christian existentialists and given that we they do affirm the existence of god there is this sort of focal point that we can sort of focus on it's still subjective in a way but there's at least this this helpful concept of god that we can use like especially with, with soren kierkegaard having this concept of god as being love yeah Uh, you at least have that sort of what might you might think is a helpful sort of compass in a way of making making a decision but it but again going back to the case of the son, you know what really demonstrates god's love is it staying with one's mother or is it going to war and helping one's fellow citizens uh, yeah defend themselves
1: which in turn helps his mom if they are successful in their campaign you know so that's that's uh another step in that, too. I, I mean, I look at it as if he were to go to war and protect his country, That's he's also protecting his mother if they win the war or if he's successful in what he's setting out to accomplish. So it's kind of like layers to there's more, more than one way he could be helpful to his mom. Mm -hmm. If he goes to war and they're successful in what he's trying to accomplish.
0: Yeah. I think what, I think what Sartre would say is that that's a big if. (laughs) Yeah. And in in, in fact, it it may be high probability that he will not survive. Yeah. Like, well, so it would, he may still help uh, the eventual cause, but, and, and, but still sort of be sacrificed to the cause, his life be Mm -hmm. sacrificed. Because, but it's. I think to, I think to Sartre's point, that doesn't. That won't matter to his mom. That won't matter to his mother. Even if he, if uh, the French or the Allies were successful in uh, staving off uh, German expansion, she would be without a son.
1: That feeling of despair is still going to be in place if he goes, and if they win, or he survives the war, and any of that. In the moment, the despair will still be there for his mother.
0: Yeah, because it, it, I mean, it think from the from the perspective of of his mother, kept a country but lost two sons. Yeah, but well, what what mattered to me was not necessarily my country, but my family. Right, two sons, and so it's a sort of ordering of of values. Like you value family over yeah. over your country.
1: Prioritizing for sure. Yeah. As far as the subjectivity, and, and I think you were talking about was was um, when we were discussing this briefly, but decisions are being made, although they are a priori with the idea of, like, I'm thinking about those, you know, that what would Jesus do, like, that whole thing that started, and everybody's wearing rubber bands, but I'm just thinking people making decisions with the idea of not only what would God do, but a man made written document called the Bible and all that stuff is left to interpretation by the reader. So Mm. that's also interesting too, (laughs) as you think about um, the filters that people might look through. And I think that's like atheist existentialism that, atheistic existentialism um i'm kind of rambling a little bit but yeah i think that's interesting to think about as well as decisions being made with god being part of the decision making process although you've never had um, any prior experience in that part of your life you know so yeah interesting stuff man
0: yeah, no, we can we can get into that. And uh, one one thing I want to uh, sort of to sort of complete what the commitments are of existentialism. Mm-hmm. I want to identify two primary commitments that really that every where everything else flows from. The first is uh, this primacy on the subject. This uh, this sort of eff- emphasis of of subjective uh, of the subjective perspective. One of the reasons why they do that. Um, or why they emphasize subjective experiences because of this commitment to what Descartes believed is referred to as the cogito, and so Descartes is famous for coining the phrase "I think, therefore I am."
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Just sort of to help understand what what Descartes meant by that was this came as part of a sort of exercise that Descartes was going through and determining what were some of the facts about reality that could not be refuted by systematic criticism or sort of systematic doubting systematic doubt mm-hmm. what at the very core of reality could not be doubted and what Descartes came down to was the existence of the self not necessarily the not necessarily the the embodied self but the the sort of this, and this is a matter of this is a point that many articles about interpret of interpretation have have been written over you know what is the self for for Descartes is it this sort of is it the soul is it the is it the, this mental aspect but it it's a, the general idea is the thinking self uh, so you think about you know when you have thoughts in your head when you're any when you have thoughts about when you see something you have thoughts about it that Thinking in that thinking, you're affirming the self in some way. What it is that we're referring to, or of some debate, of uh, so it's not quite clear uh, because it's hard to imagine a self that is not embodied, a thinking thing that is not in some, um, some in some sense embodied, and that's in part, you know, where mind body dualism comes out of uh, uh, mm-hmm. really is is comes to comes to the fore is. Uh, Descartes making this distinction between the thinking self um, as being separate from its body. And so for, for Sartre, the way that this is relevant to Sartre is that he accepts that. He accepts that the only truth that we can take away from reality is the existence of the self. So what does that mean? That means that all of the the rest of truth, the rest of what uh, determining what is real, what is what is the right thing to do, the truth of uh, the matter of fact, or the truth of of uh, or truth in generally, is going to depend the subject. It's going to flow from the thoughts, from the experiences of the subject. And then the second primary commitment of existentialists is this idea that existence precedes essence and that, and that's to contrast as as sartre points out with traditional philosophies where essence precedes existence so he was arguing against this idea that we could develop a concept of human nature that was applicable to everyone to all human beings and and for sartre that given the sort of uh, the prior commitment of, mm-hmm. of the self, of subjectivity. It's not possible, it, especially if we deny God's existence. If we de- deny God's existence and especially a, a particular idea of God having created humanity with a certain purpose in mind, with a certain uh, idea of what human life meant or what it meant to li- live a human life. And so the, the, the Christian existentialists will say the same thing right that that god didn't impart this general meaning to us or meaning to life
1: Mm
0: -hmm. god left it to every human being or endowed human beings with free will and so it's given that there is no sort of path a particular path to any specific person that they must follow and so That's where they share sort that's where their commitments are shared, is this idea that existence precedes essence. We don't we can't come to a definition of human nature or the meaning of life prior to our existence.
1: How would you describe essence in a less complex definition?
0: So essence is just sort of what I meant by by human nature. So like essence is is what is essential. To being human okay so you think about what it means to be reggie jackson what is essential to being reggie jackson or to you as a person uh, for sartre cannot be determined prior to you actually existing in the world and so so this is this is the so the example that he that might be useful here is that sartre talks about a knife and or a book so when when uh, a knife or a book is being produced or being manufactured. There's this the creator of those things has an idea of what it means to be knife, to be a knife, or what it what it uh, what is essential to for a knife to be a knife.
1: Yeah,
0: uh, and for a book to be a book. But they or in the case of a book, they have an idea of what they want it to be about, what they want the substance to be about. But all of that precedes the actual existence of those objects so many many philosophers prior to sartre's uh or prior to this this essay wanted to say that the same is the case for human beings there's this essence there's this purpose or this end that they're supposed to meet that precedes their existence their actually being in the world so one one other sort of idea that that this addresses or that sartre's philosophy or existentialism is to contrast with is Aristotle's idea that what what makes for a good human being so he Aristotle had this idea that uh, or had this argument that what does it mean to be a good human being well what does it mean to, for anything to be thought good to think of anything to be thought good it it means what we mean by that is that it performs its function well right when we say a knife is good because it cuts well it cuts really well and in the same in the case of the human being we first think about what it means to be human uh, what distinguishes human beings from other sorts of uh, objects in the world or things in the world it's our capacity to reason well given that's our sort of distinguishing aspect of, of being human what it means to be a good human good human being is to reason well and so that at least for Aristotle is something that we could come to prior to existence, right that's, yeah. that's just sort of an objective way of thinking about what it means to be human a good human being at least. And that's more that argument is more about what it means to be a good human being. It's not necessarily about human nature itself, but it, it sh- shares a sort of a similar line with, with Sartre's thinking here is that we can come to what is essential to being human prior to them actually prior to us prior to actual existence existing in the world. when if you think about all the philosophies that have been developed you know for as as sart this is sart's observation all these observations have been taken while existing while actually uh observing existence
1: yeah interesting
0: yeah so this that's those are the main think the two primary primary commitments of existentialists is that from which everything else flows from is is this this attention to, or this commitment to the truth of the subject, the primacy of the subject, and this idea that existence precedes essence, that uh, what it means to be Reggie Jackson cannot be be determined prior to you actually existing in the world.
1: Okay. Yeah, it makes sense. I was just reading this quote. Um, something I underline as far as subjectivity is uh, deeper. the deeper meaning of existentialism. When we say that man chooses himself, we do mean that every one of, of us must choose himself. But by that, we also mean that in choosing for himself, he chooses for all men.
0: Yeah, we can talk about that.
1: Well, and, is that, and I'm just curious. As I read it, it... Sounds like counter to the uh, subjectivity, but I, I guess uh, what I'm curious about with that is yeah, just, just wait, where, what is your ideas on what that means or what Sartre is trying to say? About but, and mainly just that he chooses when, um, in choosing for himself, that he chooses for all men. Is that about? As we choose to live the lifestyle we feel is best for us. That's what we all should be striving for and not maybe worrying about how other people might perceive it or judge us on those things.
0: You're right. It does at first seem like he's saying something that is counter to what he's uh, sort of laying out so far. Um, But what what he's saying there is he's discussing this observation that everything that we do whenever we do act... It's a very public. It's a very public thing. And and so when we when we do act, whether we like it or not, someone is watching and someone is judging. And and so when we do something, when we make a choice, when we make a decision, we're not we have to keep in mind that we're doing so in, in a very public way. And because of that, we're we're telling somebody else that this decision is worthy of of making it is something that you can do too and so he's not empowering yeah he's not he's not saying like like right he because at first it sounds like he's saying something that that Kant wants to say is that we should act as if we we would want our the motive or the maximum of our action to be universalized namely that we should act as if the purpose in which we're acting is is a same sort of purpose that some someone else or everyone else should, should share. No, he's just sort of commenting on the very public nature of, of actions and that, that people will nonetheless sh- see this action and say, Oh, this is, this is something that I might, I might do for myself. So like you think about this might, so one, one uh, topic that this might get into is the importance of representation in and on tv and politics and so on like why is it important that that the various demographics of of the united states of a given of a given community is represented and by representation i mean that they can be seen participating in these actions that uh, participating in politics, why that, why is, why might that be important? Well, one, one thing that Sartre might say is, well, if people in my case, Hispanic, if I see a Hispanic participating in politics as uh, a politician is in Congress, as the president, then I might think that's a life that I can achieve as well.
1: Absolutely. First black president with uh... a, makes it a uh, more achievable for other uh, young black men um, to aspire to that.
0: Yeah, exactly. It Yeah, it's a it's a it shouldn't be all that controversial, but it it's, you know, some some people might take it to be. But it, it's a very sort of simple observation that, well, if someone sees you doing it, then it, they might see that as a suitable way of. Uh, and he's speaking more about how one conducts themselves. Yeah generally. He's saying that in choosing how to conduct ourselves, we should keep in mind that other people are watching and observing that people might think that's another a sort of suitable way of conducting themselves. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so he wasn't trying, uh, he wasn't making this universal claim that what I decide is should be applied universally, but rather given uh, someone might see me and say, that's a suitable action for myself. And we should take that Observer. I like it. I like it. And so that's that's basically uh, so everything that flows, everything else, every other commitment flows from those two major com- commitments. So he, I, I think, as we began talking about, he wants to emphasize this idea of responsibility, a particular idea of responsibility, and a particular idea of of freedom. He wants to say that one of the other criticisms that he wants to sort of do away with is this idea that we can't judge others. You want to say, well, one that's, and it's in a sense true, but it's it's also false in another way because, it, as I just mentioned, uh, our actions are public. What we do is public, um, and so people can still judge that way. Like that's something I don't want to do for myself. That's or that way of conducting myself is something I don't want to do. So there's there's that, and then we can there there are certain commitments like or say reasons that we can judge as being t- uh, completely false in a, in a logical sense like it yeah. uh, so he wants to say I, so we've heard plenty of people say oh i i did this because it's in my it's just in my nature it's just in my biological nature mm-hmm. or it was predetermined that i was going to act this way yeah and he wants to say that way of thinking is false
1: I'm in total agreement with that. I I think that uh, when we hear people say, oh, I don't judge or don't be judgmental, like we, we are constantly judging our environments and the people in them and things, I mean, that we can see from, that we only can observe from afar, you know? And part of that, I was just... Uh, I don't know if I was listening to an audiobook or something, but again, in the the philotherapy, it's like, oh, we shouldn't judge our clients. Um, what we actually should be doing is checking our judgments and understanding our own biases you know and and some I mean the only way to do that and know the type of people you are going to be most comfortable working with or can do the most effective work with is understanding your judgments and your commitment to trying to be a helper for them, you know? And if we just deny our judgments or believe that they're not there, then we we can't process through those filters, like the filters or the lens that we're looking at those people at. So it's, yeah, I. To not judge is to be non-human in my mind, right? And, and um, judging keeps us safe. If there's something going on, we have to make judgments on if we're going to make this choice to do something, the impact of, of it on our um, safety, you know, or go certain places. and Like, you have to make judgments to, to maintain. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, as, as you mentioned, judgments.
0: Yeah. And that's, that's basically what the, the observation he's, he's making here is that in in the as an observation of what most people tend to do is that they're, they're just going to judge. They're going to see people act in a certain way and then make a judgment about Mm -hmm. he wants because he, one of the things he wants to uh, affirm is that we're never in a neutral point towards other things.
1: Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So we're always in some sort of relationship or relation to other things. So even with uh, a cup, we're always sort of in a relation to either making a decision about that cup, whether it's to pick it up to uh, drink what's in it. It's never this neutral relation, like having no preference to it whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And the same thing with other with other people is we. He kind of wants to say that. At times, we we see people as objects, and we stand in relation to those objects in some way, and, and it's not a neutral one. Yeah. Uh, however you want to however you want to cash that out, but it's one one relation that we're always or sort of uh, sort of position or disposition that we're in towards others is in a judging one that we're always oriented in this very judgmental judgmental way we don't ever look at something and not make a sort of value judgment about it a moral judgment about it mm-hmm. we're always in sort of that position yeah um but yeah so that's so the, everything else the things that flow from from those commitments is this idea of of personal freedom no yeah so i mean that's it, that's a topic that I think it's controversial these days because it, in a, in, a, in a sense, this is sort of this, this is what uh, Sartre refers to as the optimistic part of,
1: mm-hmm.
0: of existentialism, right? Because the, one of the other criticisms that he had, or that was waged against existentialism, is that it's very pessimistic, right? It's about it always emphasizes the despair of yeah. uh, of human life, and he what he wants to say is that. Well, yes, that's just sort of a matter of fact of our existence is that we're sort of thrusted into this world with all this freedom. Yes, it's a bit of, it's a, there's a bit of despair that's, that comes from this freedom. But uh, one of the things that we should emphasize and that we should really consider as very important is the way we react to the world and, and, the, and the use of our, of our absolute freedom. In response to all these problems and issues in the world,
1: yeah. When I relate that what you're saying, what with saying, or is related to our world now, or how we talk, maybe when we're with our friends and stuff, is like he's keeping it real. Like there's going to be times when you're going to be faced with despair. That's part of living a life, and I don't. To pretend like you won't have tough moments or tough times or deal with death, tough people or have traumatic experiences is BS. Like you you want to accept that those things are possibilities to kind of mentally I don't want to say prepare because some tragedies happen and we, we can't prepare for. Those experiences, um, or the impact of those experiences, but operating your life in a way where, you know, I'm thinking about an emergency fund from the financial space. Like you want to have a emergency fund just in case shit happens, which it probably is at some point. And so, I, I really like that concept too, and and don't see it. As a negative thing, but like a keeping it real thing, you know. <laughs> like it it's not always going to be rainbows and butterflies. That you you want to know that you got to prepare for that at points in your life.
0: I think one of the criticisms that we might see of that idea today, that's that's uh, at least in current conversations about uh, personal responsibility, is that maybe it, it ignores too much the influence of environment on on our decisions and right because we it's hard to hold someone blameworthy for choosing a particular way of life if they're living in a environment that that's all they see yeah and so i think but i one, i guess one way that that Sartre might respond to this is that doesn't negate a person's sort of having this ability to choose for themselves. Yeah. That doesn't sort of this, it's, it might be helpful, at least in terms of policymaking to have this understanding that yes, environment can have this impact on, on human decision-making, but at the say, but at the individual level, you can't get in this mindset of, of telling yourself that you are who you are, or you've, you've, conducted this life, maybe full of crime or not necessarily full of crime, but at least where you're in, a, you're not in the best sort of light position in life as you could be. You can't put yourself in a, in a mindset of blaming everything else around you, mm-hmm. making that decision or coming uh, for having the life that you have at some point you have to respect or acknowledge the responsibility that you've, that you've had in forming the life that you've that you have for yourself yeah. Uh, yeah but at the same time but it's hard right it's hard there are sometimes it's it seems it might, may seem hard to not put any emphasis on the environment around
1: yeah don't no, think you can ignore it right like, like you have to but there's also examples of people Overcoming that environment to be successful, so you can't like to your point, just saying, "Oh, it was the environment." It was the environment when there. Are, there's examples of people coming out of that same environment and being, quote unquote, successful, just in some degree or another.
0: You No. Know, so one of the one of the main questions that that, or the way that this question manifests itself on a policy level. Right. Is, is that do we make policies that kind of uh, put people who have been in a in a poor environment who have been placed in a poor environment without any sort of making of their own? Do we make policies that really don't try to uplift them uh, or try to try to go out or extend resources to to taking them out of those situations? How do we do that? It's hard to justify doing that if you're if you also believe that, oh, that they're there because of their own making. Yeah. And so this is where the the issue comes into play about, you know, if you relegate everything to personal responsibility or personal freedom, that a person's lot in life is is sort of their own their own making. Mm
1: -hmm. And it's hard
0: to justify at the policy level. Yeah, for sure writing them resources to bring them out because it's like, well, they they put themselves there, so we can't put tax resources to to helping them because that's that's just the way they've decided to live their lives.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, that's a great way for policymakers to um, to have a obstacle to the masses from making changes. I feel like is, and that, I mean, we're talking about, and when I'm hearing you talk about these things, I'm thinking about people Bootstrapping like you, right? Like, and um, what is the word like a meritocracy? And and uh, that just at least in the United States, that's just that's just not a, a reasonable or fair way, equitable way to look at those things. Is oh, everybody can bootstrap, and it's like, no, maybe. You have these people who got lucky or um, had a special talent or skill that brought them out of that. But in general, is the majority of that group, that marginalized group, being able to pull themselves into a better situation from that environment? And consistently, that answer is no in the United States. Um, We've seen it for generation after generation. So, yeah, that, that's um, very interesting concepts and ideas that we all have to sort through with that stuff.
0: Yeah, no, I think, I think uh, you know, there's there's maybe room to say that both ideas can have some merit, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that, yes, environment does play a strong role in, in our decision-making and, and the sort of life that we end up choosing to do, I mean, and again, and there's this sort of odd. It gets into this this murky area about choice. What does it mean to have freedom? One thing, one thing that maybe a a a sort sympathizer might have is that. Well, this 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 requires that someone actually be free. Yeah. Uh, My philosophy is for someone who, or is is, can is best suited not best best suited, but it describes this general case of what it means to live in freedom. And he might say or make the observation that some people just don't live with the same sort of freedom as others. Yeah. Because being in economic turmoil may prevent someone from being complete as completely free or uh, as free as someone else who's not in economic turmoil.
1: Yeah. And then uh, freedom is a frame of mind. It's a framework for mindset too. And people have to, do their own work, going back to subjectivity with Sartre, but doing their own work to free themselves of mentalities of, oh, I'm stuck here and this is all that I can create for myself or that these people are preventing me from being the best version of myself. Like so we have, like, being free of that type of thinking and being, Believing in oneself is is super huge, and not not putting parameters on what you're capable of. That type of freedom of mind, unfortunately, I feel like few and far between at some sometimes for folks.
0: Yeah, and I think I think at the very at the very least, Sartre just want uh, in, in defending existentialism as a sort of optimistic uh, philosophy and a philosophy of action he he at, at the at the very least is not necessarily dis- describing what is the case or that we actually do have all this freedom but he wants to say that it's it's better in terms of uh, practicality in terms of uh, making one's decisions or how determining how to conduct one's life it is if we go into life thinking that we have the freedom to choose how to react to a situation yeah does does uh do our social environments place some limitations on just what sort of avenues or choices we can make? Yes, possibly. but at the same time we we should go into life thinking that we have one we have this this great responsibility to determining how we conduct ourselves and how we live our lives. but two that we have that we having that freedom is is about this optimism about what we can do with it about. Uh, determining just how we solve the problems that, that are around us because we can't rely on other uh, forces to do that for us.
1: Do you know, David, do you know, uh, was he living in France at the time he wrote this?
0: Yes. From, from what I've, uh, from what I've gathered, he did live in, yeah, he he was living in France this, during this time.
1: Yeah. I, I think like it shed a, uh, It gave me a whole different perspective after you said, um, you know, this was written in, um, in circa 1946 in Europe during this time. Like that adds so much context to like what what he may have been experiencing over like the last several years. And at that time, maybe as he's creating this this uh, essay, you know, it, it, um, despair had to be a part of what, <laughs> what his experience was, I imagine, um, during that time in Europe. And so that's, so too, I would say, like, it, it is, it, I think it's badass that he puts that in there as he's maybe sorting through his own experiences at that time. And, and recognizing that despair probably um, was all over Europe at that time. People were struggling to figure out what the heck was going on and how to how to survive. And anxiety about what could happen next, you know. So to overlook that is and not like be real about what your situation is would just be. I would perceive it as an oversight, you
0: know? Yeah, no, it's, I think one, one interesting uh, observation to make about Sartre's life is, you know, as he's trying to defend existentialism as not being just another bourgeois philosophy, if you look at his life, he, you know, he went to the best French college. He was, had some classical training or training in the classics. So he had a, he had a life that, we wouldn't quite say was from uh, the proletariat, right? Yeah. He didn't live this. He wasn't born of this life of, of, of a pro- proletariat lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's interesting to, to, that he, he was making all these claims, but from having a, an experience or experienced a life that was more similar to the bourgeois life, bourgeois life yeah. rather than, rather than the, the working a working man's life, but I think I, I think at the what he wants to defend is that it, it can at least be a philosophy that the working person can identify with. Yeah, this idea that they they can rise up, they can mm-hmm. take charge of, of life, they can take charge of you know the uh the politics that are that are you know keeping them down, that are keeping them from. Living a, a decent life. And so that's in part what he wants to say is that there's it's not just a, a philosophy for the, bourgeois, for the bourgeoisie, uh, but it's it's one that we I want to emphasize to to the working class that you have freedom.
1: Yeah. And okay. he's thinking of, again, going back. Well, and I think we we're talking about Kant earlier, um, Kant earlier when I was talking about thinking about more than just his own experiences, but I feel like Sartre is also again saying like this needs to be for everyone, not just he's thinking outside of his own maybe socioeconomic status and thinking about everybody can be utilizing this. Um, The common man can be utilizing this, and it's not just for the bourgeoisie and people who have time to contemplate these types of ideas you know so i dig that too
0: yeah no see so he wants he wants to emphasize that that these is that the decisions that we're that we're trying to that we're talking about when we're making these these pretty these sort of predetermined judgments they don't happen i mean that they, they don't happen when you're when you're thinking about them they happen in the moment yeah so our decisions are, are going to be or very uh, depending on on the moment and one one other idea that i i sort of wanted to draw out of, of this work is his idea that a a person is never one way of putting it never finished mm-hmm. so what it means to be what it means to be reggie jackson or david Thomas is as uh, a as concepts or as persons, we're never finished developing who we are. Yeah. We're always in this continuous uh, phase of development of of building this uh, who we are, developing who we are.
1: I'm all I'm all for that. I like those that idea too. I'm glad we I'm glad we uh, dug into this because now I'm full a lot more um, understanding about what it what it means to be an existentialist for sure.
0: Well, Reggie, I, I, we've I think that we've done a nice job of of you know setting up what what existentialism is, and then I think in relation to your work. Were there any questions that you definitely wanted to to address before before we end our, our conversation today? No, I think
1: as we I was jumping in and asking questions as you were talking. I think as we get. Our rhythm together, it'll, I may have some at the end, but no, for the most part, the ones, I, the questions I had, I was asking as you were talking. So I apologize about that. But like I said, we'll get our flow down, but no, this, this is a uh, good stuff. And, and I even wrote down a few thing posts that I want to post based on this conversation today. So mm. I I know I think he did a good job of explaining it. I want to dig into this experimental philosophy too. That sounds interesting.
0: With that, I, I think we I think uh yeah existentialism I think has shown to there's some aspects of it that I think are nice to sort of promote and and maybe you know for others to think about in 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 a in a certain way I think in no just just to sort of address certain things we i think it may be fair to say that you and i Reggie don't don't want to necessarily come off as saying that existentialism is a, or in what they believe is something that everyone should believe
1: oh yeah 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 no
0: um, but it's it's just a night it's just we were here to provide an introduction to or a a discussion into the philosophy and its relation to to therapy and your work uh, with, uh, your, your work, Reggie, in, in terms of the principles or the, the sort of, uh, the help you, you provide to your, uh, to your clients and to people you come across and, yeah. and thinking through the, the everyday, uh, choices that we have to make in, in life.
1: Yeah. And, and, um, just for people out there who like learning and, are into, I don't know about you, David, but for sure I can have those times where I get into places of deep thought and want to know the answer to some whys. And I've said this and I'm sure I'll say it again I'm, I'm just a person who enjoys learning about different things. And so, um, yeah, we're, I, to echo what David said, we're not encouraging people to take up this lifestyle or this this idea of how to operate life, but more about and that's what the podcast will be about to some degree I think is educating folks on things that maybe we don't spend time learning about from a more something David, something I wanna be doing is reframing some of this stuff so people who look like you and I can learn more about it and understand it and it's not seen as this this education that is only for the privileged, you know? And so that's something that uh, is important to me as well as, is, is making up where people get it, you know, from adolescents to maturing adults, you know? So I would like to make part of this platform to be where people are getting this information in a way that's digestible to them, and it's not just for the intellectual types, so that's something I want to be trying to achieve through this process as well.
0: Yeah, no, agreed, and that that's that's the very purpose of of uh, of our organization, of Lawrence Talks, and and mm-hmm. uh, of the, of these podcasts is to make these theories, make these philosophies not not relevant, but at least something that folks can think about uh, incorporating into their own decision making. Um, and thinking about how they they uh, conduct uh, conduct our lives, because a great deal of philosophy, at least at the beginning, at the very beginning, was oriented towards thinking about how to best live one's life. And and so this this exercise that we're doing, the series we're we're doing, and generally what what we're about is making these theories digestible in a way that it it may may resonate with uh, with people about how they want to live their lives.
1: Yeah, yeah. and You know, we even talked about um, we went into atheism a little bit or at least atheistic existentialism. And so I think something that illustrated for me is there is no cookie-cutter way that you have to learn about this information or just people who may be atheist or agnostic, they still have that human component and want mm-hmm. to be good people and, and support their communities, you know? And and honestly, some people, we, we have to get to a place where if they say that a person tells you that you encounter tells you that they're atheist or agnostic, that does not mean they're a bad person or that they don't want to see you Um, They're not. They're interested in you being successful and happy as well. So those are things that I think some people may have to really do a lot of sorting through. (laughs) When we talk about as we talk about judgment today, David, it's just looking at those things, too. It's like, oh, you're an atheist. That means I can't really mess with you. But instead, we should be having conversations with those people about how they came to that decision and uh, recognizing whether they are treating you right is this label that we've attached to them we need to be paying less attention to that label and more attention to are they treating you right are they following through on the things they said tell you they're gonna do you know are they are they do they make you feel emotionally and physically physically safe when you're around them so those things I think, Man, just uh, there's so many different aspects of this that we can dig into. So I I hope we uh, I'm confident that we can really dig into some cool stuff and and have people who want to hear what we have to say. So,
0: yeah, no. Agreed. And yeah, I think that last point you you mentioned about the atheistic part of of uh, Sartre's uh, existentialism wants to say we talked and we talked about this that that we're never in a neutral relation to other people and one of the things that he wants to say is that we're sort of in in this it's helpful when we're in this relation where we want to help others and we shouldn't have it's going to be his contention that we shouldn't have uh, or believe in a god to put us in that relation mm-hmm. be sort of some sort of basic part of our existence yeah in some way so
1: Sartre feels like even if this thing called God didn't exist, we would still most of us would still treat people in a in a good way and not take advantage of people or things like that. Is that fair for me to say?
0: Yeah, I think he I think he 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 would definitely want to not sort of favor this sort of egoism. Mm-hmm. That we should just do what's best best for us but uh, he may sort of promote this idea that we should take our relationships very seriously. So like, like I said, we're in a relationship to our parents in a certain way. We're in a relationship mm-hmm. to our country and our city and our, our fellow community members in a certain way. And we may suggest or it may be suggested that we should, uh, by taking those relationships seriously, we're at least already in this, this position to at least think about what's the best thing to do. Yeah. Uh, them. So thinking within our, our, you know, what makes a subject who they are, you know, part of that, part of what makes Reggie Jackson, Reggie Jackson is the various relationships that you have. I mean, he's going to, so he, but he does want to prove, he does want to say or stop short of saying we should always act this way. Mm-hmm. Always act a certain way. But.
1: Gotta have flexibility, gotta have some flexibility in how you operate.
0: Yeah. And, and so he at the very least, he, he doesn't want to say that we should we should always help people uh, or we should always do, be doing something that promotes their ends. But at the at the very least, he he wants to say that there's that freedom to do so. There's that because yeah. like he again, he doesn't want to place any sort of judgment on or uh, universal judgment on particular actions or say that something like X is always the right thing to do. Doing the right thing is a matter of, of making that decision within the moment.
1: Yeah, in the therapy world, we call that cognitive rigidity when you believe that everything has to be done A B C D, you know, in an ordered way. You can miss a lot of stuff that way. You can hurt a lot of feelings and hurt a lot of people doing that, you know, or you may not receive a blessing you're supposed to get or things like that. If we are so ordered that we don't have the opposite would be cognitive flexibility,
0: yeah, and so I was gonna say even even in the case of the egoist who or someone who's committed to only doing things that serve their ends mm-hmm. notice that they too are committed to this this rigidity that you're talking about yeah, one I think other criticism of of existentialism is that it reduces to this sort of egoism, but it need not be that be the case um because even they'll say even for the egoist that they're doing that a apri- cry a priori work that they're thinking that oh in every situation i should always think about what serves my ends more
1: yeah yeah yeah
0: but yeah well, we'll um reggie thank you for having this conversation uh or joining me for this conversation
1: you know i was, I was just thinking as we close up we keep chit-chatting but um <laughs> you know like a lot of times i don't have a And this is no judgment on some of my other colleagues, friends, family members, but being able to have intellectual conversations and explore my own thinking and say it out loud is um, refreshing for me. So I appreciate you creating this space.
0: For sure, and, and with that, I want to thank all of you for for listening, and uh, hope you join us on our next discussion, and and look out for the next theory that we'll we'll be discussing.
1: See y'all! Thanks for listening.